Good morning, and welcome to another Wednesdays in the Word. Hi, my name's Gary Cooney, and I'm so glad you could be with me as we spend time unfolding God's Word together. We're in the midst of an extended study of the book of Romans. We're now in the seventh chapter of the book of Romans. I'm going to pick up the reading today in verse 7 and read on through verse 13. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through that which is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin." In this portion of the book of Romans, starting in chapter 6, we've been examining the issue of sin as it affects the life of the redeemed believer. Romans 1-5 to helps us to understand the wonder of the gospel, which is that message which saves the sinner. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and all of us, therefore, had the wages of sin and death hanging over us. But through Christ's work on the cross, as we repented and believed in him, we found a solution to that. We were justified, covered with the perfect life of Christ. We passed out of judgment into life. But as we got into the sixth chapter, we discovered this reality, that sin, though forgiven, sin, though no longer hanging over us in terms of eternal life, in terms of eternal accountability before God. Sin still could hurt us and corrupt us here and now as redeemed believers. <laughs> Though redeemed through what Christ has done on the cross, we still face a continuing battle in the day-to-day -day experience of walking as a disciple with sin's reality. Our new life inside, the new creation that we've become, our new heart, faces a very real enemy in the members of our body, the old self, in the source of temptation and sin that comes from our old self, from a fallen world around us, and certainly from the enemy of our souls. Romans 7 has been picking up on that reality and helping us to understand the dynamics of it a bit further. As Romans 7 opened up, last time that we were together, we looked at verses 1 to 6, which helped us to understand something of the nature of the believer's relationship to the law now that they've been redeemed. In one sense, it is accurate to say 
that you and I, if we've repented and believed in the gospel, have died to the law. Meaning, we've died to the law in the sense that before God, our destiny, our eternal life, our eternal accountability has been removed. The fact that we failed and sinned is overcome by the perfect life of Christ being credited to us. Sin's condemnation, eternal condemnation, is solved for those that repent and believe. Our relationship with God is rooted in the perfect life of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was credited to us. Okay, So in that sense, all who have repented and believed in the gospel have died to the law in terms of its ultimate eternal accountability. But nonetheless, God's law continues to be a binding reality on us as we walk as redeemed believers in this world. We now are called upon to keep the law, not in order to be saved, but because we are saved. Not in order to stay saved. No. We keep the law in order to bear fruit. Not to save our souls. <laughs> Secondly, we keep the law, as we discovered, in order to seek to control the continuing damage and corrupting effects of sin and giving in to the temptation to sin in this life, even for the redeemed believer. And we now keep the law enabled by the Holy Spirit, not just by our self-discipline and inner grit. No, some very dramatic things have changed within us. Now today, in verse 7 and moving onward, we want to look at the issue of sin in the believer, the issue of sin and the law, and how sin seeks to seize us, deceive us, and defeat us. And we'll continue to look at that theme, not just today, but the next time that we meet as well. So let's get into it a bit and unfold these verses beginning in verse 7. Here's the fact that we want to build upon. God's law, as it's been revealed to us, both written on our conscience, but also revealed in the scriptures, is rooted in and reflects the very righteousness and holiness of God. Let me put that a different way. God's law, as written in the scriptures, and as written on our conscience, is a good thing. It is a holy thing. It is a righteous thing. Because it reflects who God is. And God is good. God is holy. God is righteous. When we encounter God's law, either on our conscience, or more importantly, written in the scriptures, we need to understand that because it reflects the very nature of God, there is nothing in it that's unimportant. There is nothing in God's law that is arbitrary. There is nothing that can be ignored or cast aside. No, his law, reflecting the very nature of who God is, sets up for us a very different picture. The law, reflecting the righteousness of God, continues to be binding, in that sense, on everybody. 
that you and I have passed out of condemnation into life in the Lord Jesus Christ because Christ's perfect obedience to the law is credited to us, doesn't change the reality that God's law continues to be the basis upon which relationship with God can be based. And on our day-to-day walk, if we are living displeasing to God, it will impact on our relationship to God, not on an eternal level, although in a way it does because of our eventual accountability, even as believers, for the fruitfulness and stewardship of our lives. But certainly in terms of passing out of judgment into life, it no longer is accountable. But now it continues to impact upon us. God's law defines for us what a righteous life is. God's law defines for us what a good life is. God's law defines for us what a holy life is. And therefore, it is binding. It is meant to direct your and my response to life as it unfolds in this world. God's law, good, holy, and righteous, because it is reflective of the very nature of the God who has saved us and with whom we are called to have relationship. If we are seeking relationship with that God and are breaking his law, our relationship, at least in a temporal sense, has to be influenced and affected by such things. Well, verse 10 tells us this, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Now I'm going to talk more about the death to me in a, in a moment or two, but let me pick up on the first part of verse 10. We learn there that the point of God giving us his law, making his holy and righteous and good law known to us, both writing it on our conscience and revealing it in his scriptures, was to provide life for us. The law, in its amplification in the scriptures and in its presence in our, in our very conscience, summarizes for us the requirement for a continuing relationship with God. It defines for us what God is looking for what being in his presence is all about. It tells us how we can seek to be in relationship with God, dwell in his presence, and not be judged. Serves a good purpose. God says, listen, this is how you can have relationship with me. The old covenant was God would deal with us on the basis of how well we kept his law. If we kept his law perfectly, we'd have relationship with him. But no one from Adam onward kept his law perfectly except for the word made flesh to dwell among us, the Lord Jesus Christ, who perfectly kept God's law. But none of us did. As a result, this life-giving law, remember that's its intent. Its intent isn't condemnation, its intent is life. This life-giving law ended up condemning all of mankind. Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me. This life-giving law, reflecting the holy, righteous, good nature of God, ends up being our condemnation. Why? Because as we discovered in Romans 1 through 5, we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
And as a result, all of us have been separated from God as a consequence. All of us stand accountable before God. All of us face Romans 6.23, the wages of sin, the outcome, the fruit of it, is death. But thankfully, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. <laughs> All right, summary. Those are the reasons in Romans 1 to 5 that we need the gospel because we're all sinners, ultimately hopeless and helpless in the accountability that's inescapable for such sin and rebellion because of the very nature of God, not only holy, just, and righteous, but consuming in that nothing can dwell in his presence that is sinful and no one can dwell in his presence who is sinful. Now, this decision to sin, which is universal in the human condition, this sin condition we need to talk about a little bit further. We've discussed it, we've defined it throughout our study in Romans together, but let me repeat the essence of it. The decision to sin is a decision ultimately to rebel against law, against God. It is a decision fundamentally to reject the first and greatest commandment. What is that? Well, Jesus defined it for us. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. It is a determination I will not love God that way. If I do anything for God, it's going to be somewhat less than that. And so all stand guilty of breaking the greatest of the commandments which if you understand that, you realize even struggles and failure related to other moral standards of God sort of pale in significance if you break the greatest of the commandments. But nonetheless, sin involves breaking the moral standards of God as well. A refusal to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and a decision to go ahead and arbitrarily break the stated laws of God as it relates to human activity, attitudes, and relationships becomes the characteristic picture of a sinful, fallen humanity. And therefore, because of that definition of what sin is all about, we understand more perfectly why the scripture goes to such lengths to tell us all people found death, not life, through the law. Ironically, the verses I read to you today in chapter 7 of the book of Romans even goes further. It tells us that God's law, which the point of it was to provide life, but of course it doesn't. It provides death because it identifies sin for us. Actually does even more than that. What does it do? It actually acts as a stimulation to the fallen mankind to break more of God's law. The law itself acts as a stimulation to make sin choices. You say, well, how can that be? Well, it's a good question. But he goes at length here, God goes at length to explain how that can be. <laughs> and he explains it in this way. He says, the old man, that which was our old self, me, you. When we hear God's commandment, our old self now, that's what I'm talking about, our fallen self. When our old self, our old man, hears God's commandment, it makes us more inclined to do the very opposite thing. There's a dynamic in this. 
as a fallen humanity, when we hear God's law, we're inclined in the very act of hearing it to be more determined than ever to break it. What a vicious, vicious cycle. How does that happen? Well, he tells us in these verses I read to you today that God's law, when we hear it, gets into the old self's thinking. It gets the fallen mankind thinking more and more about the prohibited action. And as you think more and more about what God says, I don't want you to do, you actually increase the likelihood of doing the thing God says, I don't want you to do. We increase the likelihood of a sin choice the more we reflect upon the sin choice. And the law itself has a tendency to stimulate us thinking about the sin choice. Now, haven't you found that dynamic to be true in you? Even going back, think about your whole lifetime, back to your earliest memories as a child. Haven't you discovered, as Romans 7 develops for us, this very dynamic in operation? The old man that you were, when you heard something that you were not to do, or something you were to do, the more you reflected upon it, the more tantalizing disobedience became. Now think about that dynamic for a moment, and let's develop it further because it's central to the argument God is giving us here in Romans 7 to explain to us the reality of why you and I as redeemed believers need to draw upon the enabling of the Holy Spirit and live in righteousness, obeying his law, rather than rebelling and living in carnality. This dynamic is understood, think about parent-child relationships for a moment in the real world. When you tell a child, don't touch, they begin to look at what you said, don't touch, and that very activity, as they're looking and reflecting on it, seems to make the touching all the more attractive, all the more compelling. Haven't you discovered that? Listen, I've had eight children. <laughs> I've seen that dynamic operating in them. And the fact I was a child one time, I saw the dynamic operating in me. To be told not to do something, the very fact of it as I reflect upon it, I found the urge to do it got greater and greater. Hey, by the way, if you saw that dynamic, and all of you have, I'm sure, in your children, it wasn't that you got a bad batch. That's the essence of the human condition. To be told no, to be told don't do something, don't touch it, increases in the very act of being told not to do it, the inclination to do it. Haven't you seen that truth? I'm sure that you have. And God is using that illustration for us in these verses in Romans 7 to say, Come on, you understand how sin works, how temptation works. This same dynamic is seen not just in parent-child relationships, but think in general in human relationships. If you put up a sign that says, don't walk on the grass, 
the likelihood is that more people will end up walking on the grass than would have done it had you not put up the sign. Why? Because human beings, when they see the prohibition, don't walk on the grass, all the more want to walk on the grass. <laughs> you see, they're, in, they're, they're motivated, impelled, stimulated to do the very thing that they're told not to do. <laughs> all right. What, here's, the, here's the application. God is telling us here in Romans chapter 7 that when we allow, as redeemed believers now, the old self to be sitting on the throne rather than the Lord Jesus Christ, sin more easily can seize us when we hear God's truth, his commands, his laws. This is true of the unsurrendered redeemed person, just as it was true of the unredeemed individual. But for the redeemed individual, it didn't have to be true any longer. We had another option, the option we've been developing now in Romans 6 and 7, that instead we could be surrendering our lives, choosing to live in righteousness, growing in that surrender and dependency upon the Holy Spirit's enablement, then we no longer have to be living under that dynamic of being seized and deceived and controlled by sin in this world. Understand the dynamic? Well, God builds it even further for us by using in these verses the example of coveting. He says, For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. The word covet here, epithumia in the Greek, refers to a deep urge within. In this particular context, as we're reading it in Romans 7, it means a deep urge within to take for oneself what God forbids to take for oneself. You remember the 10th commandment in the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, puts it this way, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Central to the Ten Commandments is this issue of coveting. Now, the dynamic here, since God's law is written on the heart, on the mind, on the conscience, even of the unredeemed person, a person's conscience would trouble them if they coveted something. But when a person hears the revealed law of God, the written scriptures as it relates to coveting, more than just being uneasy and feeling somewhat guilty about coveting, hearing the written law of God actually stirs up the urge to covet for the unredeemed and for those not living surrendered to the Lordship of Christ in their life. Hearing the law stirs it. Remember, don't walk on the grass, don't touch. Those very things stir the waters. And he's saying that's the way coveting works. Our old self rejects God's law, and as a consequence, ends up seeking to talk us in to coveting, convincing us 
that we deserve and need what God has forbidden for us to do. The longer the debate goes on about coveting inside of us, the power of the temptation to sin like coveting entices us more. It grows within us and ultimately defeats us. Have you not noticed that dynamic to be true in your life? And the answer has to be yes, even as a redeemed believer. By the way, this dynamic was also seen in Genesis chapter 3 at the beginning of the scriptures. In the temptation in the garden, by Eve's listening to Satan. You remember God had forbidden Eve and Adam from eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They could eat everything else, but that they were not supposed to. And so Satan, tempting Eve, draws her attention to that very fruit, to that very prohibition, to how enticing and good that fruit looked like, how it maybe was ultimately something that would benefit her, not hurt her like God had said it would. And as Eve listened to that, and as she gazed, as the scripture puts it, on that fruit, she found within herself a growing desire to take the fruit, in that sense, to covet the fruit. And that desire, as it grew, to take that forbidden fruit, continued to get to the point where it almost, and then did, become overwhelming to her. God was teaching us much about the dynamics of sin at the very beginning of the scriptures. All right, so what is God saying here? In these verses, God is saying, that's how sin seizes us and ironically uses God's holy and righteous law as a springboard to seize us. And when we're allowing the old self to be in control of our new life, our redeemed life, we are easy pickings for that dynamic to take hold. That's one of the reasons we need to be presenting our bodies a living sacrifice, allowing uh, Christ to sit in the throne of our life, drawing upon the Holy Spirit's enablement. Because if we don't do that, we are susceptible to these dynamics and sin will take over because sin is powerful. We need God's help in overcoming it. We can't resist the very dynamics Romans 7 is talking about in our own strength. Here's the point, and we'll end with this today. We all tend to underestimate the power that sin can have and temptation can have in our lives. Because we underestimate it, we are not as apt to see the absolute necessity of living surrendered and enabled by the Holy Spirit. We are apt to think we have the capability to keep it under control based on our own strength. Understand that the decision to sin has the power to break up our day-to-day -day walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin, even for the redeemed, has the power to enslave us, even as redeemed people. And left to ourselves, we are simply no match for the power and allure of sin's temptation. Do you catch all of that? Well, join me next time, Lord willing, we'll continue to examine verses 7 to 13 and seek to understand how sin operates to seize us, deceive us, and defeat us. God bless.